Well, this is one of those messages again today, like last week, that honestly, uh, I'm not even really sure how to approach this. I'm just going to jump in, I think, and I'm going to share with you what's on my heart. You can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6 as we continue our study through the whole Bible. We're in the second part of Isaiah 6 today. Actually, just be looking at one verse. I'm not sure we're headed in a good direction. The first week in Isaiah, we covered five chapters. Last week, we covered uh, seven verses. Today, we're going to cover one verse. That's probably not a good trend. I'll see if I can fix that. The Bible tells us something very um, revealing, very touching for me every time I read those words. It says that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. You know why he did that? He did that because as he probably stood there on the, on the hill right opposite and was kind of looking down on his beloved city, he knew that those people that he had created, those people that he loved and was about to die for, were going to reject him. They were going to turn their backs on him. Some were going to be very shortly shouting, crucify him. And many of them, most of them, would spend eternity separated from him in hell. Now, I don't mean to say this the wrong way, but you'd, you'd almost kind of think that with all that Jesus had going on, with all the pressure on him, with all the demands, with all the um, things that he still had to complete to accomplish and fulfill his Father's will, with everything that he had on his mind and on his heart, you'd kind of think that maybe we could excuse him if he just looked at the city and said, ah, bunch of losers, they deserve what they're getting. But it moves me to, to read that Jesus wept over the city. We read in Paul's letters three times, I believe, if I've found them all, where he describes the tears that he has shed for the gospel and for the people that he was working with. He said, I, I never stopped warning you night and day for three years with tears. What is it that brings a person to that kind of place of passion having that kind of heart for others. You don't get that just by showing up at a church service every week. You don't get that. You don't get that by just reading the Bible and memorizing verses. You don't get that by being more religious than everybody else. How do you and I 
ever honestly reach a place in our busy lives with so much pulling on us that we could honestly say we weep over the lost. I mean, we're busy. We got a lot of things to think about. We got a lot of plans to make. We've got a a lot of people to see. And in our busyness, in our even in our attempt that we talk about a lot here to never allow any of what we're doing to become commonplace and routine. Even with that, can I just ask you, when is the last time any of us wept over Greenville? What is it that does break your heart? What is it that brings tears to your eyes? Is it when your sports team loses? Is it when that big investment goes south and you lose everything? You know, the interesting thing is we actually go to great lengths in this life to avoid ever having a broken heart. We do everything we can to not have to cry because for some reason we feel like we want to be all nicely put together. (laughs) And thinking of a broken heart as a good thing, (laughs) as something that we would long for, it just seems foreign to us today. But our Savior, the one in whose steps we have been called to follow, the one whose life we have been called to pattern our life after, he wept over the lost. There's a world of difference between a Christian who lives for Christ out of a sense of obligation or guilt and a Christian who lives for Christ out of an unstoppable passion for him. It's very easy to live a Christian life out of Obligation or duty to a pastor, a youth pastor, your parents, your grandparents. But finding people who are living the Christian life out of a heart that is overflowing with gratitude for what Christ has done for them and a heart that is breaking and bleeding for those who don't know him. It's just, uh, it's rare. And what we see this morning is what we actually see throughout the whole Bible, and we see throughout all of history. 
that God has been and still is looking for people who will serve him out of a, Bible calls it a pure heart or a perfect heart, doesn't mean you never mess up. What it means is the pure means that it's unmixed with other things. It's undiluted. Your devotion for him is pure. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, and even right up to this very morning, God is looking for people who will serve him out of a passionate, pure heart that is committed to him. Can I just tell you, God is not the least bit interested in pew warmers. He's not the least bit interested in churchgoers. The Pharisees had all that locked up. They did it all perfectly. And Jesus was the one who scolded them with his words. A verse that you rarely hear talked about is 2 Chronicles 16.9. And it says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him or whose hearts are loyal to him. That kind of heart, that kind of passion and commitment for Christ does not come through religious activity. Listen, it only comes as the result of a genuine, life-changing encounter with God. When a person is transformed by the Holy Spirit, I'm not talking about joining the church. So many people have been led astray by saying, come down and join the church and fill out this card and you're good to go. Good to go where? Our friend Moose Keller, thank you, Mike, for mentioning him. Moose, hi, if you're watching, uh, pray for Moose. That's such a sweet brother. Everybody who has ever known Moose has been loved by Moose and has probably had your vertebrae crushed by one of his bear hugs. Um, Moose would tell you he, he was invited to join a church when he was young, and he went down and joined the church and got baptized. Nobody ever once asked him if he knew Christ. He thought for years he was good to go until he read in Matthew 7 one day, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he got saved. Hey, you want to talk about carrying on a religious routine? My dad was preaching a sermon years ago in a church, and he gave the invitation, and the pastor was the first one to come down the aisle and be saved. He's a brave man. But he realized that he had gotten into it out of a sense of obligation to his parents, wanting to please them and do the right thing. He had never come to Christ. It is possible. I talked to a lady here years ago, I told you, close to 90, I believe. She said she'd been in church her whole life. I said, has anybody ever told you about your need to be saved? She said, no. Her whole life in church. You see, the kind of heart that God is looking for, the kind of person that he wants to find so that he can send and show himself strong through that person, 
That kind of heart does not come from anything short of a total rebirth, a total transformation by the Holy Spirit when our old man dies and the new man is born and we live a life we've never lived before because Christ is now living through us. Last week we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 how Isaiah had such an encounter with God. We don't have time to review all of that, but he saw God's holiness and glory uh, it caused him to drop to the ground like a dead man and basically say, I'm doomed, I'm done, um, I'm a sinful man. He confessed his sinfulness and he was cleansed of his sin. He was purged of his sin, it said. And when that truly happens to a person, the very next thing they'll want to do is not join a church. Nothing wrong with joining a church. By the way, if you've been coming here for a year and you're still just kind of on the fringes, you need to talk to me or somebody about what a commitment actually means to a local body. We don't push membership here, but uh, we also think it's important. I think it's important in a time when people don't want to make commitments to anything. Well, I'll just see how it goes. If it's not good, I'll bail and I'll go find something else. No, man, no. Whether it's here or somewhere else, commit to something. Okay, commit to something. Um, the first thing that a person will want to do who's truly been transformed, like Isaiah was transformed that we saw last week, the first thing they'll want to do is to live for Christ and serve him in any way they can. You know, I love new believers because they'll do anything you tell them to do. You tell them to tithe, they'll tithe. You tell them to come to every service, they'll come to every service. But what you see is after two years, three years, five years, it's like, eh, people get lax, and yeah, I got this, it's all right. And so today we come to verse 8 of Isaiah 6, and what we see happening here is exactly that. Isaiah has been transformed, and the first thing he wants to do is be used by God. This is a, another epic verse. Let's try to hear it for the first time. Now, he's just had this experience with God. He's just had his sins cleansed. And then he says in verse 8, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, I want to give a very quick caution here. Um, I debated whether to include this or not for time's sake, but I just think it's so important. This verse that we've just read is almost always used exclusively in missions conferences and in pastor uh, dedication or, or pastor... Um, um, What's the word for it? Ordination. Thank you, ordination. Good grief. I need some more B12 or something. <laughs> now, using this verse for either of those things is certainly right. It's appropriate. Uh, I mean, Isaiah was commissioned here, so it's right to do that. But that approach has also caused tremendous harm in the church, and I will tell you why. When this text is taught exclusively 
um, under the impression that this is for those who are called to be pastors or foreign missionaries, then 99% of the church sits there and thinks, well, clearly this is not for me. This doesn't apply to me because I'm just a mechanic. I'm just a school teacher. I'm just a barber. I'm just a salesperson. I'm just a mom at home raising my kids. So I guess I miss out on this one. And it makes them feel like second-class Christians. That kind of teaching has only added to the notion within the church that God only calls and uses pastors or missionaries, and the rest of us are here just to watch them do ministry and to support them as they do ministry. Listen, that is a lie from Satan. I say this with all the kindness in my heart, but it's just the truth. The Roman Catholic Church is largely responsible for perpetuating that lie because they were the ones who said, we up here in the big robes and the tall hats, we are the clergy. You are the laity. We're the professionals. You're just the ordinary people. So you come watch us and just do whatever we tell you to do. And it created this gulf between the stage and the seats that should never exist. I've told you before, I believe the most appropriate position for me or anyone up here to preach in is to dig a ditch right here and fill it with mud and let me stand down in there and preach up to you. That would be more appropriate. Do not believe the lie that the people who stand up here are better than you, that they're more spiritual than you, that they were called in some better way than you're called to live your life. It is not true. Ask my wife. Please don't. (laughs) And so as a result of this lie, Church has become a spectator sport where people show up and just expect a show to go on. They rate the show in their mind. Yeah, this one was pretty good. I don't know. Worship was kind of loud today. Might need to talk to him about that. Yeah, we sang one extra song today. Good grief. We didn't sing enough songs today. It was kind of quiet. I think they should turn the volume up. Phil ran 10 minutes long today. Did you see that? 10 minutes long. You know what's awesome is when you get up here and you you preach your heart out and somebody comes by afterwards and goes, ran a little long today, huh? It's like, yeah, ran a little long. I actually got an email years ago from somebody who said, um, this is all she said, why was your sermon so short today? Did you have somewhere you had to be? That's the truth. That's the truth. You can't win. That's the thing. You can't win. But, he, but here's the thing. There's no distinction between us. Yes, there's clearly leadership defined in the New Testament for the church. That must be in place. But folks, I'm telling you, I struggle with the same slop you do every week. Mike, thank you for your honesty today and opening. 
We're all in this together. You understand? Do not look up to me in that way. Don't put me on a pedestal. I can't handle that. I've tried really hard to break us of that dangerous lie and remind you often that if you are saved, you are a minister. You're a minister of the gospel, every bit as much as I am. And I can tell you for a fact, there are sermons that you can preach during the week to people. Those people would never give me the time of day. But you have an open door with them to minister to them. In fact, people run almost when they find out I'm a pastor. I don't tell them anymore. I just make up something. I hope they don't find out the truth. See, listen, uh, God has a purpose and a mission for every one of you. In fact, I would go so far as to say, the only reason your heart is still beating today is because God still has something for you to do. A year ago, almost to the day, I almost checked out. When I was in the ambulance after preaching up here, going to the hospital and the medics were working on me, I can tell you uh, it was the, it's only the second time it's ever happened in my life. I wish it would happen more. But I, was, I saw all the commotion. I heard all the beeping. I heard the phone calls to the hospital and everything as we were racing there. And I was enveloped in a cocoon of peace that I, I would sound like a nut job if I tried to describe it to you. And I remember thinking at one point, well, uh, if my time is up, if God's done with me, nobody here is going to be able to save me. And if my time isn't up, nothing's going to kill me. So I said, well, I got nothing to worry about either way. Why panic? And I was, it was one of two of the most peaceful moments of my life. Because I do believe that. I don't believe that God has left me here on this earth to, to build up my 401k. Nothing wrong with that. God hasn't left me here to uh, find myself. My heart is still beating today. Because God's not done with me. You can be sure of this. The moment you hear that Phil Pike is gone, you can know God was done with him. And he's gone. You are here because God still has a purpose for you. When God asked Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? That was not a one-time question. God asked that throughout the Bible, and he's still asking that question today. And when Isaiah answered, here am I, send me, that was not a one-time answer. God is still waiting for people to answer that today. Here I am, 
send me. Throughout the Bible, God has called people. I'll just hit these very, very quickly. Abraham, Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Genesis 22. Then God said to Abram, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. What? Yep, rose early in the morning and went to the place of which God had told him. These are the people God's looking for. Moses, Exodus chapter 3. God called to Moses from the midst of the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 4, the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. We see this pattern throughout the scripture. God calling people to step out for him, and they can either say yes or they can say no. God called Jonah, and Jonah said, Not on your life. At first, God called Moses, and God, uh, Moses said, Here I am, send Aaron. And eventually he got around to the place where he said, okay, you can send me and I'll go. Um, The disciples, Mark chapter 1. And as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. The disciples weren't just saved. These people in the Bible weren't just saved. They didn't just have that encounter and then say, wow, I can coast on the vibe of that awesome encounter now for the rest of my life. No, no, they were saved and then they were sent. They were saved and they were sent. And if you've been saved, may I remind you that your salvation is only half your story. God still wants to write the other half. Are you going to let him do that? Your salvation is not all there is to being a Christian any more than a wedding ceremony is all there is to a marriage. It's just the beginning of what God has for you. Problem is, especially in America, I've seen we pray a prayer We get our ticket to heaven punched, and that's all we do. And you say to someone, hey, what's God doing in your life? Um, Man, let me think. Like, I don't know, last 10 years, anything? Mm, I don't know. Uh, Maybe I think of something. Why is that? It's not God's fault. God wants to show himself strong on your behalf. But you have to be available. As followers of Christ, every one of us has been called to share God's message. And by this, again, I know people are going to tune out right there because they're like, I do not have the gift of evangelism. I freeze up when I'm getting ready to talk to people. So this is not for me. Yeah, it is for you. 
Because it's not about standing on the street corner with a big sign and preaching, repent or burn. That has its place. As kooky as it may look, people have come to Christ through that. See, that's how that person was sent. Let's not mock him. I used to. I'm I'm woefully embarrassed about that. I used to when I was younger. I I see the sense in it now. But God has wired each of you in a way that when he sends you, he's not talking about selling your home and moving to Bangladesh. He's talking about maybe starting with your family. And then, I don't know, get crazy and carry it into work. Take Christ into work with you. Our answering yes to God's call is the expected response for everyone who has been saved. Answering yes is not, God's not like going, woo! No, he's going, finally, thank you. This is what you were made for. The mission of all who have been saved is to share it with others. And again, share it, not a great phrase. Use whatever you want. But there are a hundred thousand ways you can do that. Some examples of this that we see in Scripture. Jesus once uh, delivered a demon-possessed man from the evil spirits. And the man was so grateful that he just wanted to immediately follow Jesus and become one of his preachers and just go all in. Jesus had a different plan for him. We're told in Mark chapter 5, verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And you know what? A little side note, years later, Jesus went through Decapolis, and there were all kinds of people who came out to meet him. You just have to wonder if it all went back to that one guy. The woman at the well, we know the story in John 4, She believed on Jesus, and then she went back to her town and started telling people what Jesus had done for her. John 4.39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She didn't use the Romans' road. She didn't have the little four steps to salvation booklet or whatever. Those are fine if they work for you. But for heaven's sake, you don't need it. Can you talk to people about the ball game you saw yesterday with a smidgen of excitement? I bet you can talk about Jesus too. And then, of course, there's the Great Commission. Uh, You know, we all know this, Matthew 28. I'm not even going to take time to read through all that. Jesus basically said to all of his followers, and this comes forward to all of us, he said, go, go. But here's the interesting thing. The word go there in the Greek, there's strong consent that the meaning of that particular use of that word doesn't mean 
Stop everything you're doing, make special plans, and go somewhere else to do the gospel, to tell the gospel. It means as you go, make disciples. It means in your daily going, make disciples. Boy, that changes everything. Now we don't have an excuse to go, well, Jesus didn't call me to go to Afghanistan, so. We've all been called to carry the gospel to others. And here's the thing, your specific calling won't look anything like Isaiah's, nor will it look anything like mine. And mine won't look anything like yours. But we've all been called to, at the very least, live as testimonies among the unsaved world. Two quick examples, Philippians 2. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Oh boy, we take this separation thing way too far. We think that means we got to cut ourselves off from every unsaved person. Are we nuts? There's a statistic I read years ago. I can't say statistic, but I read that years ago. And it said, on average, when a person becomes a believer in Christ, within two years, on average, all their friends are Christians. And I stopped and went, well, that's impossible. Nobody leads that many friends to Christ in two years. No, when I read on, that's not what it was saying. It was saying they've exchanged all their old friends for Christian friends. They've turned their back on everybody they knew. We are missing the point. God did not save us to huddle together here and have covered dish lunches. Those are great. We need another one sometime. That's not why he saved us. What we're doing here today should simply motivate us even more to go out and do what we've actually been called to do. Hey, it's not the pastor's job to reach Greenville. You're all ministers. You've all been ordained. You know, the piece of paper I got from the state, it means nothing in God's eyes. It means nothing. Just basically so I, if I get sued, I, well, I don't know what will happen. Don't sue me. I don't know. (laughs) Another one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's the very least we can do. Even if you never want to open your mouth, you at least got those two verses to deal with. But being able to truly live that way requires that we have a deep appreciation for the cleansing salvation that we've received, and we have a genuine burden for those who have not received it. Otherwise, we won't care how we live. 
See, Isaiah wasn't just broken about his own sin when he said uh, last week, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of unclean lips. He was also broken about the sin he saw all around him. He said, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was saying, well, we all, we're all in desperate trouble before this holy God. And that's when Isaiah got his calling. That's when he saw his mission clearly for the first time. It happened when he realized how doomed he was in the presence of God's holiness and that everyone else he knew was doomed too. Unless their sin was purged by God's grace like his had just been. That rattled him. He had experienced the joy of God's cleansing power, and he wanted to share it with everyone else. And that burden became Isaiah's mission. He said, send me, send me to go tell them what I've just experienced. It would be like you dying of cancer and someone coming to you and giving you a pill and saying, take this right now. And within minutes after you take it, you're completely cured of cancer forever. And then you're just turning and walking away from the guy. No, you'd say, I want to buy every bottle you have. I know so many people with cancer. I want to take one of these to all of them. I want all of them to be cured. But people get saved. They rarely think about telling others who are dying. But it's important to remember that verse 8 of Isaiah only happened because verses 1 through 7 happened first. Now, I know this is why you have me up here to tell you things like this. It's such a genius thing. I just pointed out. I'm not talking, you know, in a sequential fashion. I'm saying event-wise, verse 8 only happened because verses 1 through 7 happened first. And verses 1 through 7 happened so that verse 8 would happen next. Y'all just have to listen to the recording later and, and pick that up because it's, uh, it's like a Dr. Seuss thing, I think, but it's true. Verses 1 through 7 happened so that verse 8 could happen next. In other words, Isaiah didn't have that sudden burning passion and burden to say, God, send me. I want to go and tell these people. He, he didn't have that passion before he had that encounter with God in verses 1 through 7. And he had that encounter with God in verses 1 through 7 so that he could go and tell. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been prepared. God didn't cleanse Isaiah at the end of the journey. He cleansed Isaiah to commission him for the journey. People ask, how can I know where God is leading me? Where and how does he want me to make a difference? And the simplest answer, and I believe the most scriptural answer I can give you is this. Pay attention to what God burdens your heart for. Really, I'm telling you. It's that simple and yet that profound. Pay attention to what God burdens your heart for. Why? Because God 
leads us in the direction of our burdens. God will burden your heart for something, and it will tear you up every time you think about it. You might share it with me, and I go, eh, I wouldn't do that to you. But it won't hit me the same way. Because that's your mission. He's burdened your heart for that. And he'll burden mine for something else. He'll lead you in that direction. He'll lead me in the direction of my burdens. There's so many examples of this. I love the example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was captured. He was taken hostage to a foreign land. And one day some men from his homeland back in Judah and Jerusalem came to see him. And Nehemiah says this in chapter 1. He says, I asked them about the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And in the verses that follow, he prays this incredible prayer, confessing his own sin and confessing the sins of his people. Sound familiar? That's what Isaiah did. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Nehemiah confesses his sin. He pours out the sin of his people. He said, God, we've disobeyed your commands. We deserve everything we're getting. But you said in your word, God, that no matter how far we were scattered, if we turned to you, you would come and gather us back up again. And in that moment, Nehemiah's heart became burdened for a specific need that five minutes before he had never thought about. He couldn't stand the fact that the walls of God's city had been torn down and that the people there were living in shame and disgrace. So he began moving in the direction of his burden. And he prays a bold prayer. He says, Lord, I have to go before the king soon. Will you please give me favor with the king so that he will grant this request that I'm thinking about? He's moving in the direction of his burden. And when Nehemiah goes in before King Artaxerxes, the king says, Nehemiah, why do you look so sad? It was a high offense to look sad in the presence of the king. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3, And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, By the way, I believe that's the shortest, fastest prayer in the Bible right there. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask, listen to this, I ask that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. What? This guy was a cupbearer to the king. He brought snacks and juice to the king, and he's going to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Some of the stones in that wall, one stone is the size of a bus. This is not an easy task. And yet you see what getting a burden can do for someone. Nehemiah said, man, I don't care. Nothing is going to stand in my way. God has broken my heart for Jerusalem. King, give me your permission. I'm going to go rebuild that thing. 
And I can't wait to get to the book of Nehemiah in 17 years. <laughs> you see what's just happened here. Nehemiah was already being faithful in his daily duties. He already loved God. But now, now he had become burdened for a need. And suddenly he has a boldness and a vision that he's never had before. That doesn't come through church programs. That doesn't come from saying, well, I guess I better go do something for the Lord or Phil will be on my case. It comes from this passion, this burden that rises up in you. You say, come hell or high water, nobody's going to stand in my way. God help me. I am going to do this for you. That's what we need. For the most part, we are burdenless people. We don't weep over anything. Well, I'm, oh boy, I've got to wrap this up. God has put you on this earth to make a difference for his kingdom. You will be able to make a difference in ways I never can. He has something unique for each of us to do. But we'll never do any of it if we try to skip verses 1 through 7. You understand? That encounter with God. You say, man, I've, I've joined the church. I've, great. I don't care. Listen to what I'm saying. Have you ever had a genuine, life-changing encounter with the God of heaven? Because if you haven't, all this religious stuff, all this church stuff is going to wear you out. You're going to try more. You're going to try harder. You're going to do more. You're going to take on more. And you think in all of that process, you're being more holy and you're pleasing God more. No, you're just working yourself to death for no reason. The only way this kind of burden will come to you or me is if we have had that encounter with God. And I will tell you this, it's not just the encounter when you're born again and saved. We need to pray for those encounters all along the way because the journey gets dark, it gets lonely, it gets weary. And every one of us finds ourselves in the ditch now and then. Every one of us. We need to say, God, reveal yourself to me again. I've kind of forgotten who you are. I've kind of forgotten what a huge deal all of this is. God, please come. Show me a glimpse of your holiness so that it will scare me to death and cause me to fall on my knees and start taking life seriously. Let's pray. As we sit here this morning, right now in this place, I want you to know God is asking, whom shall I send and who will go for me? I wonder if you will answer the call by saying, here I am, send me. Here I am, Lord, send me as a school teacher to the other school teachers. Here I am, Lord, 
Send me to the mechanics I work with. Here I am, Lord. Make me your ambassador in the realtor's office. Here I am, Lord. I want to be your ambassador in the barbershop with the other salespeople, with my artist friends, with the chefs I work at at the restaurant, wherever it may be. As a stay-at-home mom, God, I want to be your ambassador to my children. Here I am, Lord. Send me wherever it is you want to take me. Send me. And I pray, God, I pray right now this morning that no one in this place, not one person, would say those words to you out of guilt or obligation. I pray, God, though, if one person in this room Even one person is truly moved by your word this morning. And they desperately want to see God in all his holiness. They want to be awakened again. They want to have a fresh burden on their heart again. They want to weep for that burden. God, I pray that person would answer, here I am, send me. And I pray, God, you would do amazing things through their life. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036 Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart.